Welcome to the Word on the Hill. My name is Father Peter Musset. I am a Lanka guy, and I uh, want to welcome you to a podcast that is very long. <laughs> well, hopefully not too long. It's a lot of content. It has a lot of content. Uh, I'm Scott Powell. And we, he is also a lanky guy. I'm a lanky guy. We're going to tackle bum, ba, da, bum, the Easter Vigil readings yeah. for this week. Not all of you, of course, will go to the Easter Vigil. Um, it's Good Friday by the time we're putting this out, so maybe you won't even listen to the podcast, but maybe you can listen to it later on um, because I think it's going to be good. The, the Easter Vigil, is this, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Easter Vigil is technically the most important mass in the liturgical year, right? Yeah, it's the highest. The highest. Important it's, is the wrong word. It's, it's the like highest the, mass of the it's liturgical the, year. It's the solemnity of solemnities. Oh, night of nights. <laughs> yeah, this is the night where you take the candle, you plunge it into the water, you you do all the stuff, and so and many things happen. I plunge a lot of other people into the water. You plunge other people into the water? Yeah, there's a lot of plunging. There's a plunging. That happens at the Easter Vigil. That's amazing. We're going to, I think, attempt the Easter Vigil with our 9, 7, and 13-month-old. Yeah, we'll I see get, how that goes. You know, I've seen you guys go up into the choir loft and like crash and like That's bring blankets and stuff. That's the way to do it. Yep. If you have little kids. Now, last year a bunch of people showed up up there. <laughs> oh. The first year we tried it, we had it to ourselves. And we're like, "That's that works." Yeah, we had anyway. A, we I think we'll have a good vigil. I will tell you this, and then we can move on to the the eight thousand readings we have to get through. <laughs> um, and I think because my kids, my kids, kids are hard. Kids are crazy, and I don't have the most devout kids i mean you know i there's all these families i know when i went to steubenville and there's these catholic families like their kids are singing hymns and and chanting poems at dinner you know and quoting aquinas and stuff i don't have those kids we're trying to you know keep our shirt on at dinner and not make poop jokes as we're you know during mass and they're i'm trying to stop them from making shivs during the homily and this is our family however they love they adore the easter vigil and yeah. for weeks in advance of Easter, they beg us to take them to the Easter Vigil, which is kind of fascinating because it's a really long Mass. And I don't have kids who are terribly well-behaved in Mass to begin with. But there's something about – and this is – that we were talking about this before the podcast. There's something about – there's this ethos of what the Easter Vigil is, that it's very long. But there's light and there's dark and there's candles and there's incense and there's me- the kind of music we have and the – the the baptisms there, there's actually always something happening, and it is the most layered the layers of symbolism and imagery that are taking place at the Easter Vigil, and, and just the sheer fact that it's done at a strange time of day, and you go really late into the night, and there's something profoundly experiential about the Easter Vigil Mass, Absolutely. which really resonates even with my little kids, which is is really beautiful. So it's hard for it's really exhausting the thought of taking them all to the vigil, but. It's hard to look at them and be like, no, you cannot go to the three-hour mass that you're begging me to take you to. <laughs> like, I, I think I have to suck it up and take them. But it says something about the the heights of this mass and yeah. what it's actually doing. Yeah. So if you've never been to an Easter vigil before, I, I challenge you to, to check it out. The first – I never went to the Easter vigil growing up. And so the first time I went me was neither. in college. Me neither. Same and I was, I could not believe that this was happening. <laughs> it was amazing. I remember the bonfire outside for mm. the first time. Um, the priest started it at 2 a.m. and uh, Started it at 2 a.m.? Yeah, started the bonfire at 2. What time did your mass start? Dawn. Is that still a I mean, I mean, sorry, sorry. It finished at dawn. It's It started oh at, at like 2.30, 3. Oh, that's... 
That sounds hard. No, dude, it was amazing. And I had been fasting for, I was in college and I'd been like drinking water for like three days alone. You know what I'm saying? And I was like batty and it was amazing. Wow. Seriously, the best breakfast burritos I've I've ever had were at the reception <laughs> afterwards. The reception afterwards is it's just it's the classic. best. It's yeah. the best. It's like mimosas and breakfast burritos. <laughs> And like, and all the soda and Skittles and gummy worms and chocolates that you gave up for, dude, just all at once, dude. It's just like open up the floodgates, <laughs> rooms of vices, dude. But I know the 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 beautiful, the powerful reality, especially of these readings of this this like this um, kind of uh, very punctuated entrance into salvation history yeah because th- that was the other thing that i found so compelling is that when i discovered salvation history mm. meaning that there the work that god was doing in israel in preparing them with their feasts and their understanding and their scriptures and their culture and how christ took up everything of the uh, of this jewish hebrew israelite culture and transformed it so that it was the source of his grace and his saving history all of a sudden like when you tune into that i mean that's really the, that's the origin of our of our podcast is that both you and i have had this profound experience of like meeting the lord in salvation history it's our road to emmaus experience that's why I wrote my thesis on the road to Emmaus. I said it in a in a sappy voice, but I, I meant it seriously. <laughs> uh, and me too. I said it in a sappy voice I too. Uh, I didn't do it didn't. at all. You sang though. No. So so we are. The, what these readings? How many readings are there? There's seven old. The, well, there's seven, there's seven Old epistle, Testament readings. Yeah. There's 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 and this, then the epistle, the epistle, and, and then, then the, the gospel. gospel. So it's, and a psalm in between every single one of them. Okay. That's a lot of math. So that's seven, eight, nine. So that's eighteen readings. That's a lot of readings. So we're not. We're going to take a couple minutes on each of these and kind of plow through. But it is it is really beautiful what the church is doing because and if you go to the Easter Vigil, if you've been. All of the seven Old Testament readings and the Psalms that punctuate each of them are done in darkness. The church is supposed to be pretty much dark, right? Yeah. And then once we get to the New Testament, the lights come on and everything everything changes. And um, right. it's this profound moment we can sing Alleluia and Gloria again. Um, but we're meant to it, – it's, it's, again, this experiential way that it's done. They're long. And it takes a long time to sit through seven Old Testament readings and all the sung psalms. And by the time you finally get there, it's 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 exhausting and it's dark and it's hard. And you're like, oh, my gosh, there's another one. And then you get the glory. But we're literally vigiling. Vigiling? Is that a word? Vigil- we're, we're vigilant. We're vigil through this darkness. We're being vigilant. We're being vigilant. Oh, hopefully. Or we're, fo- or we're dozing off. Oh, we're vigilantes. <laughs> so to speak. Um, but so, okay. So I was trying to think, I was looking over these this morning and I was trying to think of, cause there's so many different things going on. Yes. It's telling the story of salvation history, but I was trying to think, okay, what, what's the, what's the thread? And I don't know what the thread exactly is, but one of the threads that I had to kind of put in my own head to just kind of stay sane, dealing with 18 different readings is coming from the gospel and the way that the gospel will eventually punctuate all of these things, but it's the words of the women. So this is how I'm, this is the little lens through which I'm reading all of the rest of these, right? Okay. And it's the words that the women will say in the gospel, which as they're going to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning to anoint Jesus's body, they say, who will roll away the stone for us? 
things are hard and things are dark and our Lord is dead and we want to anoint him, but we can't do it because there's a big rock in the way. Who will roll away the stone? Which is, I think, the mantra of all of salvation history. Things are hard. Sin is great. The world has become this dark place. We need someone to roll away the stone because we can't do it ourselves. Uh, you know what? I, I mean, I... I... That's my little word. Well, what I so profoundly appreciate about that word that you just said was that um, it is a concrete expression of the word that I had as I was going <laughs> concrete through. Concrete stone? Ah. Uh, I like it. I, yeah. It, and and w- which was... My my word is very abstract and complex, and then, which is <laughs> that sounds right. It, yeah, it sounds right. It's not surprising. Is um, <laughs> faith in the conflict man experiences in a superficial way with God? <laughs> that is complex and and abstract. <laughs> abstract. Yeah. No, it's, it's right, but yeah, because yeah, because like what, what's happening is that you that we're gonna we're gonna experience through all of these readings these conflictual things with God. Mm. God's gonna, uh, I mean, not not in the creation. I mean, yeah, no, absolutely in the creation. That's how it begins. That's well, the first word, baby. Let's let's begin then. And and really, the thing that's even though there's not necessarily explicit question marks in each of these, each of these readings are sort of encapsulating a question, right? Mm. And so, you, well, what did you just say? You said all of them have Con- conflict. A, a, a conflict with God on the surface, because like what's happening yeah, well, is, is that there's this experience that God is asking something that's like way out of bounds or difficult or strange, or or that there, there's this experience with God that is... It doesn't make sense, and there's some conflict in you. Conflict and chaos. Conflict and chaos, and that everybody's going to have to pony up with some real faith to make it through. Which is precisely how Genesis begins, and how the entire story of Scripture, because how does it begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless waste. Tahu abahu. That's what it says. What did I say? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was a rhyming scheme. But isn't it interesting, though, even as you said that, the way that the whole of the scriptures begins is with chaos and conflict. Mm. What is, the, what is um, the universe before God speaks order into it? It's, it's a formless, formless and void. So it doesn't have form and it's empty. It's chaotic and conflictual, right? It, and and what does God is, yeah. do? He speaks. And as he speaks, order comes about. He speaks order into the chaos, which is mm. precisely what he does in our lives in salvation history. But it's it's um, it's uh, not symbolic. What's the word? It's uh, 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 <laughs> I can't think metaphorical. Of no, no, no. Emblematic. Emblematic. It's emblematic of the whole of the story. Right? There's chaos and conflict. It's dark and wasteland and void. And God speaks. And actually, if you read through this reading, there are ten times. That this, the Genesis text says, and God said, and God said, and God said, 10 times God speaks. And when he speaks, it's this little um, formula every time. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw how good the light was. And he called it day and he called it night. And then God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters. Let there be sky. Let there be, etc. 10 times God speaks order into the chaos. 
um, the Hebrew people called these the, the first 10 words of God, which they actually said mirror the Ten Commandments, which are also called the Ten Words of God. What are the Ten Commandments? They're meant to bring order into the chaos of the world in our lives, because that's what God does. Um, the ancients actually saw this first reading from Genesis as a massive liturgy. Because God speaks and the creation responds. It's the responsorial. And in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis actually captures this in, I can't remember which book of the Chronicles, the, the last one. Um, I guess the last battle. I don't know. I don't know them super well. But where Aslan actually sings all of Narnia into being, yeah, which is meant is, to mirror this. A magician this and his nephew. Is, the, it's, is that it's, the magician's It's the first nephew? one. Yeah. Well, depending on how. Depending on the order in which you read them. Well, that's it, the way that they're read versus the, the way, way that, that they're, they're written, written is very different because the horse and his boy precedes everything. I mean, sorry, I'm um, sorry. The magician, his nephew precedes everything, though he wrote it last. And I think it was meant to be read last because there's all these things in it that if you hadn't read the rest of them, you wouldn't be like, oh, this is the, this is the way that anyway, sorry, this is we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but I think it was written last because if you know the rest of the story then it's all going to blow it up for you. You're going to be like, oh, that's what the lamppost was. And there's, you know, all of these reference points. And the bell and the queen and and the the disobedience and the man and woman and the kind of Adam and Eve figures. It's the flashback, which makes more sense once you've read the rest, which there's probably a scriptural principle in there that I'm missing. But anyway, the point is, it's kind of cool. Yeah. So that's what the first reading is doing. But but there is, I mean, again, to your point, it begins with chaos and conflict. And God bringing order into it, which again mm. is sort of the, God is going to roll away the stone. There's this big stone, in other words, that is conflictual, that's keeping us from God, that's keeping order from the universe, and God's going to fix it. I like it. So that's our first reading. Then we, um, are we going to go go through the Psalms? Ooh, see, that's a tricky one. I, I don't really, I didn't prepare the Psalms, I'm going to be honest. No, I didn't either. Lord, send out your spirit, renew the face of the earth. This one, the, the connection point here is that as God is creating, what does he do? He sends his spirit to hover over the face of the deep and over the con- conflict. And the first moment of order you see, yes, God speaks, but what happens when he speaks, his spirit descends and hovers over and helps to bring the order out. Um, I just want to say, and I don't know if we'll do every psalm. One thing I do want to say, as he's sending out his spirit and renewing the face of the earth, Psalm 104, the reference point back in the beginning of Genesis, um, when it says his uh, yeah, mighty wind swept over the waters. It's Penuma. Uh, it's Ruah. Ruah. Penuma is Greek. In the Hebrew, it's Ruah. I think, yeah, transliterated, it would be Penuma. Yeah, same, same. But Ruah, the, the language that's actually the mighty wind swept over the waters, um, the the language that's being used here is actually ornithological. <laughs> Do you know what ornithology is? Yeah, study of birds. Yeah, the bird study. That's actually the language. So hovering or sweeping over is the word rahab, which rahab is an ornithological word. And so you would describe like a giant eagle who's hovering over her nest, protecting it as rahab. That's what the spirit is actually doing. It's hovering in this protecting Ruhab, rahab? Yeah, exactly right, which is... Poetic sound. And this is why you can, you can see the scriptures were written to be um, proclaimed so that people could remember. Ruah Rahab is a powerful word. That's what God's doing. His spirit is hovering like a protective bird, mother, mother eagle over its nest and helping to bring protection and order. That's what God does. And that's what the psalm is reminding us of. 
That's cool. Yeah. So that's the only thing I wanted to point out about that because it was neat. Ah, and then we have Abraham getting put to the test. This yeah. is so we we have uh, Genesis twenty two. Yeah, and the line I wanted to talk about is not actually in this because it jumps around a lot. No, come that's on, okay. we'll, we'll get there. How are you going to d- mention something that's not in it? And then the scriptures for the vigil. We have enough readings already that you're <laughs> going to jump I, in and add something. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. Okay, just you, know, you you do you do you. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's just like the 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 most the most wild oh, demonstration. No, it's here. It's here. Oh, good! The most wild demonstration of of the prefigurement of Jesus Christ that mm-hmm. I think exists within the scriptures. It's just so clear that it is is absolutely blows my mind. And I got to read it once at the vigil when I was a seminary, and it was the best oh, ever. That's cool. My first year. And the reason why, just to put the pieces together, so this 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 passage about Abraham being asked to take Isaac up the mountain, um, there's a lot. We actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? Because I got a bunch yeah, of angry yeah. emails about, about how I knew this. Right. The, the tradition suggests, if you read the, the ages of everything, that it seems most likely that Isaac was in his mid-30s when this took place. Right. He goes up a mountain carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. But and, and this is not original to me, but I've never seen this before until a couple of weeks ago. I was working with some students on this passage. Um, I'd never seen this before. And I'll just, this is the only thing I'm going to say about it. Okay. Isaac's question. Did we talk about that a couple of weeks ago? Um, no. Okay. What does Isaac ask? So he goes up on the mountain. He's like, I'm holding this wood. <laughs> he's like, I think he probably knows something's up. But do you he, remember his question? Here are the fire and the wood. Where's the sheep for the Holocaust? He doesn't say sheep, though. That's a bad translation. Wow. Lamb? He says, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? It's a really important question because what happens when when the angel stays Abraham's hand and says, don't sacrifice him, don't lay a hand upon him, what happens next? Then they spy a ram, not a lamb. A ram in the thicket, right? Yeah. Which, which is, we're going to put on the t-shirts for the CUCSU football game. Absolutely. Year, and, sure. he, and he took it and sacrificed it. Well, this is the, so cool is the, is the blowing of the shafar. Okay. It's a ram. So before the temple sacrifices, yeah, they yeah, would yeah. they would actually blow a shafar, which right. is a ram's horn, reminding God that he has yet to send the Lamb of God. Yes, exactly right. I've just never noticed that. I knew the shafar horn. Yeah. But I never caught that. And again, this is not original to me. I just never noticed it. Right. Isaac's question isn't answered. Hey, where's the lamb? Well, there's a ram. There's a Let's ram. Use that. We stopped that. Yeah, exactly. But the lamb has not come. And then isn't it interesting that John's gospel begins... Behold, Behold the, the lamb. lamb of God. There it is. And it's at the center of our liturgy yeah. is behold the lamb of God. It's like this is everything that we've been waiting for. This is yeah. this is our conversation even beforehand is is like understanding the nature of the Jewish feasts, yeah. the understanding the nature of the 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 Jewish Mishnah to actually get into the Talmud and understand what are the liturgical practices of of Israel and at the temple in their detail can be such an advantage to us to be able to understand why these things are significant. Like the shofar horn. If you know that that's what they did, right? Like, oh, that changes everything. Then you go totally. like, oh, they're reminding God that they haven't sent the Lamb of God, but now we're here and we see, behold the Lamb of God, and we're like... John gets it. Yeah, you're like, why? And, and then we're a people, yeah. but why does it matter? And that's this is the hard part. It's like, that's why the church needs to... I think this, we're in a time of beautiful awakening, and I think that... I hope for, so. For you and I, I mean, like we're trying to do our part of proclaiming this. We are. And the 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 you asked why does it matter? And and you meant why does it matter like that we know these things. 
But you could ask that another way. Why does it matter that all these things, why does it matter that there hasn't been a lamb yet? Well, the response, this is another place where the responsorial is kind of beautiful. It's because you are my inheritance, O Lord. Where's the lamb? Well, Jesus is going to be the lamb, which is our inheritance. Mm. The lamb is our inheritance. You could mm. almost twist the words around and actually reshape what the second reading in the psalm are actually doing. You are my inheritance, O Lord, from Psalm 16. You are the lamb who is going to come and be sacrificed on our behalf. That is our inheritance. But it's still coming. We're Well, it, it's come now. But for thousands of years, they were waiting and trusting and praying and saying, we know you're going to come. When, who's going to roll away the stone? I keep coming back to that line. Where's the lamb? Who's going to roll away the stone? Why is there so much chaos and conflict in the world? Where is our protection? Our help comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord, is, his spirit is hovering over us. Well, and that's where we see Abraham as so much faith to be able to walk up. Isaac has so much faith to be able to walk up and to do this. There's so much faith going on waiting to say like, okay, Lord, you have created form and you have filled this, but we see this conflict and we see the struggle and, and yet we will stay our hand when yes. you say stay, we will go when you say go. And we need to be inspired in that. And because this is also the great moment of adult conversion, which is like it, the Easter liturgy is the moment of adult conversion. When we say this is actually the true inheritance that that is all of humankind is called to. Yes. And which, which is, Oh Lord, you're my allotted portion and cup and you will show me the path to life. Yeah. Like it's just, it's the best. So we get into the Exodus. Well, and what is the path to life? Well, sometimes the path to life is actually a movement through chaos and conflict on all sides of us, which is the next reading. Yeah, with, with the desert, the wilderness is is like literally just speaks like it itself is the is the word of of like chaos. It's it's like waters. The water. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. But this reading is even more specific than that. I mean, it's okay. So we're in Exodus. This is our next step in our trudging through salvation history. And uh, our next step is this moment where Moses has now led all of Israel out of Egypt, out of their slavery. The Passover has taken place. And now they've arrived at the banks of the Red Sea. And God says to Moses, stretch out your hands and the waters will be parted, right? Which is the exact same language that was used back in the first reading from Genesis about the Lord separating water from sky. Moses, it's now going to happen through Moses. God's ruah is now going to act through the hands of Moses. Still God doing it, of course, but through Moses' hands. And now the waters will be separated, just like they were in the first moment of creation, right? And what's going to happen? I mean, this is a fascinating scene. I heard a rabbi give a talk about this once. As... And we all know the scene, right? The waters part and all of Israel, the whole nation goes through. But imagine being Israel and walking through the Red Sea with these walls of watery death on both sides of you and being like, um, (laughs) there's the water that could come crashing down at any second on us. And it's funny, um... The next chapter of Exodus, Exodus 15, is this song of salvation that they all sing. It's, it's the song of Miriam, right? The hymn of Miriam, where they all sing basically, God has saved us. He's so, this is so great. He's brought us salvation. But if you read it carefully, they don't appear to be out of the Red Sea by the time they start singing their song of salvation. So it's this um, interesting paradox of, of the life of the Christian life. I mean, this is Jews, obviously. <laughs> But this interesting paradox of actually singing and thanksgiving for the Lord's salvation, even when we haven't made it out yet. 
Right. And that's what I think is most compelling about this particular story. They're singing God's salvation. They're singing and thanksgiving for it when the walls of watery chaos are still surrounding them. Right. They're not out yet, but they know that they will be. And that, you know, the, the waters are going to come crashing down on Pharaoh and his troops and his chariots and his charioteers and everything else. But they're still in the midst of chaos. And the ability to actually thank God for his salvation while you're still in the midst of chaos is a really compelling idea to me, which is the story of the Old Testament, right? God's salvation is coming. I know it's coming. I trust that it's coming. You are my inheritance. The lamb is on its way, but I'm still in the midst of chaos. And now we still are in another, another version of that because the Lord has come. He has brought our salvation, but then he ascended into heaven and he's going to come back again. And so we're still kind of in the midst of chaos right now. But can we sing of God's salvation even though we don't fully see the other side yet? That's what's compelling to me about this yeah, story. I just think of, of Israel as they're passing through the midst of the, that, um, you know, one of the people says, you know, get out your hymnals and to go to page 42. No, they, th- it took one person who was, was thinking about what was happening, yeah. who was present to the moment in the depths and then realizes the song itself. And I imagine they begin singing the song. And people around them say, oh my goodness, yes. And they start singing along and they're singing in the midst of the sea and they understand that this has been pre, pre, prefigured and premeditated so that the, as they're going through, they sing, they're singing this song and they go, oh my goodness, this is part of our, this is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy right now as we go through in the midst of this. And, and I bet you that the, the glory with which they sang that song and understanding was so powerful, but it took one person I wonder if it to, was. to make known. I wonder if it was. I bet it was later, the glory with which they sang it. I bet at that moment they were like, oh, thank you, God. This is really cool. Well, no, th- this is the thing. Is I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I, I bet wrong. you were, they were that, but then like understanding ideas are more powerful than, than yes. anything else. And then you say, hold on. It's like only the penitent man shall pass, and then he ducks through the 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 thing, and you yeah. go like, oh wow, okay, yes, right. and now we understand that like this is this is real. So I mean, I think there's a lot of emotional experiences, but yeah, I'll yeah. tell you, singing when it's hard is actually really beautiful. That's why we say, let us sing to the Lord; He has covered Himself in glory. Yeah. What do you think that means? He has covered Himself in glory. The, is, that, is that the same as He has hid Himself in glory? Wow. I'm just trying to put this together with the Psalm, you know, or with the uh, with the reading. So, 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 okay, this is my, this is a really existential question. (laughs) Perfect. What is your experience of the Lord's glory? And, and I ask that. Watery chaos. I ask, okay. Well, I mean, this is the thing is I, I ask, I ask you in the, in the listening audience, you can pause and I would love for you to just take a moment and to say, when have I experienced the glory of the Lord? Hmm. And because, because like, I'll tell you, I experienced the glory of the Lord when uh, in scripture in a way that is so pro- powerful. That's why I love doing this. Yeah. Is that, is it coming together with you, Scott, in the midst of this to say, okay, I want to discover the ancient hidden depths of God. I know that I cannot behold him and I only see him dimly as in a mirror. And, and so as in a story, I see him in a story. So when I start to put this, the, the, the prophetic with the gestural, with the moral in the midst of a community that believes, I see glory. So I saw, I've seen his glory in the the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I've seen his glory when it connects in a beautiful way, in a powerful way in the liturgy and the ordination rites. 
I experience it. So in a certain sense, I, I don't know if we experience, it's like very Eastern. It's like yeah. we experience the emanations from God, but not, um, but it's hard to understand God in and of himself. I mean, we would say that Trinitarian wise. So yeah. we sing to the Lord, he's covered himself in glory, meaning that, that if they were to be singing this song while they're in the midst of it, you combine those two elements together of, of existential experience with deep understanding. And I think that that is what my experiences of what the glory of the Lord are. Say that one more time. The what, what? With D- the... Deep uh, 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 existential experience with deep understanding of that experience. Deep existential experience with deep understanding of that experience. Right. You've just articulated the fourth reading, I think. Okay. So that's why I wanted to catch you on that because yeah. that's a great segue. <laughs> yeah, and Isaiah. Isaiah 54. Yeah. Isaiah 54, just a moment of background. Um, This is a beautiful little hymn of how God will never abandon his people, but we have to know where it's showing up in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, it's, gosh, it's such a confusing book, but it takes you from the historical narrative of the events surrounding the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, that when Jerusalem is going to get, you know, taken out by Assyria and almost destroyed, and then eventually once they get hauled off into the exile and into captivity from Babylon, and then this third part where they actually look ahead, then God says, okay, you've really sinned, you really blew it, you really got punished, and you're really going to be restored in the future. Mm. And that's where we are right now. Chapter 54 is looking ahead about 170 years into the future from where Isaiah is into this time that God's going to rebuild them. And he's saying to them, look, I had to punish you because you were headed down a really wrong direction, but I need you to see it for what it actually is. I need you to see the depths of that experience because if you can see the reality of your experience of exile, you're going to see the truth of it. What did you say again? Existential experience with understanding of that experience. That's what God... In the midst of that. That's what God in Isaiah 54 is asking the exiles to do with their exile. To yes. see that in a new way. To, that, that in their exile, to experience it as actually from the hand of the Lord. Yes. And, and you're still in the midst of the watery chaos in a certain sense, but I'm asking you to see beyond this. To have and I'm faith. telling you, And I'm telling you who I am so that you can trust in me and know this. He says, the one who has become your husband is your maker. I've wedded myself to you. Yes, I hid my face from you for a little while. Yes, I had to punish you because you were doing horrific, dangerous, self-destructive things. So I had to do this. But... There was a brief moment that it looked like I abandoned you. And in great tenderness, I'll take you back. In an outburst of wrath for a moment, I hid my face. But in enduring love, I take pity on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Um, This is for me like the days of Noah, right? And he goes on. But it's exactly what you're saying. See this current reality for what it actually is and trust with faith that, again, the lamb is coming. Who will roll away the stone of exile? We, I will. Yeah, and he says, oh, oh, afflicted one, storm-battered and unconsoled, mm. I lay your pavements in carnelians, sapphires, rubies, carbuncles, precious stones. We're getting images of the heavenly Jerusalem. Absolutely. So that, Which is also the imagery of the same kinds of stones that were there in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. They show up in the rivers when God's creating in Genesis 1. And this is... They'll show back up in the new creation of, Gen- of Revelation 22. 
and uh, which is to say and this is why like why glory is such a hard experience it takes the 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 window the door by which we enter into the glory of the lord is faith yes because it's 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 in the midst of conflict that we say hold on fidelity in conflict is the kingdom Say that again. Fidelity in conflict is, is the, the kingdom. kingdom. Fidelity in conflict is the kingdom. Yes. Because as we experience it now. As we experience it now. But someday we will experience it in fullness. And and face to face. Yes. And we're gonna be there and we're gonna say, Oh my goodness. What will we say, Father Peter? We will so say I song. will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. Perfect. You set yourself up brilliantly for that. Hey man. <laughs> right? That, is, that is what the psalm says. I will praise you. And I love that this psalm, Psalm 30, I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me, is written long before the Lord has rescued them. Yes. <laughs> and that's the brilliance again of the, the beauty of this experience, to actually see it for what it is in this deep uh, ex- existential way. I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. You haven't done it yet, but I know that you will. So it's as good as if you've rescued me because yes. I know that who you are, right. like you rescued Isaac, like you rescued Moses and the Israelites, like you've rescued all the rest of Israel in the exile, which is um, actually a good segue into the fifth reading, Dude, Isaiah 55. Okay. I'm just saying, one of the things I'm looking forward to in heaven okay. is meeting Isaiah. What was this dude for real? Poor Isaiah. He had a hard go at it. But dude, his prophecy, he gets two readings in the vigil every year. He gets two. Well, this is kind of neat. So the first one from Isaiah, the the one that we just read, was Isaiah 54, which, again, in the context is talking about, okay, you are going to return from exile and God's going to rebuild you. But then at the very end of Isaiah, Isaiah 55 through 66, the last 11 chapters, is going even beyond that. So remember, they, they dealt with the sin that took him to exile. They're dealing with the exile. They're looking ahead to beyond the exile. And then the last chapters of Isaiah are looking beyond that to the eschaton, where it's going to be even greater than, yeah, God's going to rebuild Jerusalem. He's going to rebuild you as a people. But you got to look even beyond that to the end, to the eschaton one. I'm going to make you my people, like you said, face to face. And you're going to see the kingdom, not just of David, but of Jesus. And you're going to see the kingdom for what it is. Mm. And it says, uh, what does it say? Um, thus says the Lord, all you who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, in other words, the exiles, come receive grain and eat, come without paying, without cost, drink wine and milk. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your wages for what fails to satisfy? Heed me and you will eat well and you will delight in rich fare. Come to me heedfully. Um, listen that you may have life. I will renew you, not just with the covenant that you have, but with an ever everlasting covenant. The benefits assured to David, I'll make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. So I sh- you shall summon a nation you knew not, and nations who knew you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. This is the church that it's speaking of. This is the heavenly Jerusalem that is coming down. Yes, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Yay, whoopee. But then there's going to be a heavenly Jerusalem after that. So yes, be assured, rest uh, in the fact that I will rescue you. But then I'm going to rescue you right? in a way that you've never even dreamed of. This is the brilliance of Isaiah, is that it spans so grand a vision for all of humanity and, and what God is doing in the history of salvation that it's appropriate that we actually have both of those passages. Yeah, it's a lot like listening to my preaching. 
<laughs> just <laughs> goes on and on and on. Just kidding. <laughs> and then, of course, the psalm that's attached to it is not a psalm at all. It's from Isaiah again. Dude <laughs> from the very gets, beginning Dude of it. gets three. Boom, he gets three, which says, you will draw water joyfully from the springs of salvation, which, of course, is referring to what? The side of Christ. Yeah, probably. I was thinking of baptism. I was too. From which comes from the side of Christ. <laughs> yes. I was thinking of the gotcha. river with carbuncles from Eden. Yes, which is the kiddie pool baptism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should put some. You should throw some carbuncles in the dude in the target kiddie pool. Hey man, I need some. I need some carbuncles. I like our kiddie pools. I dude, I, we. I, this is the thing: is it's very practical, but we yeah. do it with dignity. No, I. I sorry, I'm not trying to make light of it because it's. You are is, making light of it. I know I am. <laughs> but it's done well because it's surrounded by foliage and yeah it's just a, it's just a it's just a basin it's just but a basin is, that's covered in glory but this is the, which is mm, th- that speaks so deeply to not just the readings but all of salvation history is god uses the everyday stuff to bring about his glory right he's using the exile to bring about his glory he uses our sin even to show us who we actually are and to mm-hmm. call us above and beyond that so yeah you're gonna draw water joyfully from the springs of salvation and this this everyday material water that we all drink every day we use it to bathe every day almost well, I don't know about you but you know <laughs> you know what I'm saying he's gonna you isn't it isn't this is sorry now we're getting far afield but I mean the, the, the idea this is the beauty of being a Catholic the sacraments and the stuff that God chooses to make sacramental is just everyday stuff, water, bread, wine, oil. He takes the everyday stuff of life and he transforms it into his glory, Mm. which is just beautiful. We don't have, and this is where (laughs) we don't have to have these sapphires and rubies and carbuncle and these, these riches because we just have water. But guess what? The water can actually become more valuable and more glorious than any sapphire or carbuncle ever could. Absolutely. And that bread, yeah, that bread is far greater than any diamond you will ever find because God loves to use the stuff of our lives to bring about glory. It's just kind of beautiful. And that's what we should be even be reminded of as we're witnessing these things happening at Mass. Which takes us to Baruch. Baruch ata alohenu Adonai. It's interesting to me that Baruch is thrown into this scheme of readings. I love Baruch. I mean, and, and in the past, we've we've always talked because Baruch is the is the place of of crux where we say, yes. "How far have we come?" And this this is the gift of saying, like, finally we understand. It's like this uh, this place of faith. It's this wi- this door through which we say, "Oh." We this is, finally get it. This is what the Lord has been doing forever. And that's actually the glory. Like, it's so glorious yeah. when you say, oh, 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 oh. Because that's the thing. All of the, the, the previous two readings, at least, are, are dealing with this situation that we're being punished. But eventually the punishment will end and will be restored. And right. restored beyond our wildest imaginations, which is great. Not just restored, but regenerated. Regenerated, resurrected. Resurrected. I mean, if, if, you, if you're ready to go that far. But Baru- and that's great. And it's great to be like, oh, yeah, everything stinks, but I know I'm going to be saved. Right. But then you have Baruch, which actually is the people saying, oh, we get why it stinks. It's not just, okay, things are hard, but they're going to get good. It's we finally understand why this has taken place. 
we get the exiles, not just because God is mean and mad at us. And it's that moment, you know, uh, Father Reniero Cantalamesa. He's yep. um he's he was the he has the hardest job in the world. He was the one who used to preach to, to the JP2, Pope. To JP two, he led the re- to the retreats for JP two, which is crazy. But he has this line. I don't remember where he has it, which says, uh, "If you've never, if you've never wept over your own sin, you need to pray to the Holy Spirit to have the grace to do that." Wow. To actually realize and to see if you've never actually wept over your own sin and your own failings, you're really missing something. Hmm. To actually see like, oh, I've really fallen. Right. Because then you can understand, oh, he's really picked me up because mm. I really fell. Yeah. And I really needed him as a savior and he came through. It's one thing to say, oh, things are hard. They're going to get good. It's another to say, oh, wow, I get it now i see the why yeah. which is why i love the whole book of baruch by the way was uh jeremiah's scribe so he was the one that accompanied jeremiah through really horrific stuff I mean, jeremiah is a kind of contemporary of isaiah in a certain sense but um he Je- isaiah was like the national he was the the court um the court prophet, prophet. uh jeremiah was just some guy just some guy who showed up and said hard things. And everyone's like, who the heck are you? I have you those stink. My, we want to throw you off the cliff. I have those people at my parish. We all do. Well, it's the same parish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Baruch was his right-hand man. So if anybody sort of understands, like, oh, my gosh, I see this. But then he records, not only does he see it, but the people see it. Right. Which is honestly one of the most glorious books of the Bible. To come to the realization of, oh, I get it now. I get why these things happen, and I see how God is bringing me out of it, which is appropriate at this point in our trudging through salvation history. It's right. still dark in the church, but at least we get it now. Which we sing in response to that, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. Right. Like, which means, in other words, I don't. I, I don't have them. And that when I actually get to see your glory, I realize that those words, that, that, that bringing the order out of the chaos— that when you bring order out of the chaos and the conflict and the struggles, and I'm able to perceive it through faith in the midst of this, and, I, and I'm yeah. not just going to be skating on the surface, but I'm going to go to the depths, then I can respond, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. This, yes. is, this is the saving reality of your law. And, when I, and I fear you because, my goodness, Lord, what have you drawn me through and your people through as, so that you could actually speak such a word? You are... The Lord is courageous in in drawing us into faith. By the way, absolutely. He he gives so much credit to us, especially those of you who suffered profoundly. Think about how much courage the Lord has that you're going to navigate what you're doing with faith, yeah. and that He's going to actually draw you out and show you His glory, and not just in 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 vestiges, but in the reality itself. <laughs> and that's what you're being called to. Absolutely. Okay. Here's Which the is, thing. Okay. Oh, what? Go for it. And then we're going to go into 7th reading. Here's the thing, man. This is just me, and this is my own pride. If it were me, I would have reversed these two. I would have put Ezekiel first and then Baruch. Now, I am not the church, and I do not have the mind of the church in all things, so I trust that this is good. Why would you have done that? Because Ezekiel is pretty explicit and says, okay, this is why you are where you were. Here's what happened. Here's how you got here. Here's all the things that you did to get you to this place. That is the exile and your punishment. And it goes through and it says, but here's what God's going to do. He's going to, uh, but it, it's, it's more than Isaiah does. Isaiah just said, Isaiah presumes that you know exactly what's going on. 
and it shows you how it's going to get glorious. Ezekiel is written to the community in exile. He's writing to the exiles. And he's saying, look, let's look back. Let's go piece by piece and say, this is what we did. We, we, um, yeah, we, we, uh, profaned your name among the nations. Uh, we took had idols. Wood. We defiled him with idols. We did all these things. And it says, but here's how God's going to restore you. He's going to do so many amazing things. Give you a things. new heart. I'm going to wash you clean. Right. I'm going to uh, put my spirit within you and uh, so that you can observe and be like my fathers and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But I would love it if Baruch was after that saying, oh, okay, now we get that. This is also because you're, you're not very Thomistic, which is <laughs> no. the scholastic method, which is the question I'm, is set. Oh, yeah, how yeah, did yes. we get here? Yes. No, that's true. Like, like, like Fair you enough. say, oh, we got, oh. Fair enough. And then it's like, oh, this is it. Let's lay it out. Let's get explicit about one after another after another. All right, that's a fair. And have the Lord respond in the midst of it. That's a fair argument. I can see it both ways, but I, yeah, okay. And then this is the most explicit place in the Bible where God, where God through Ezekiel, says what's going to happen. He's going to gather you from the nations. He's from the midst of those who profaned it. And all the nations will know that I am the I am the Lord, and in their sight I will prove my holiness through you guys, and I will take you away from the nations, gather you together, bring you back to your own land, sprinkle clean water upon you for Pete's sake, to cleanse you from your impurities, from your idols, I'll cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you, taking from your bodies the stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. I'm going to put my spirit in you and make you live by my statutes, careful to observe my decrees, live in the land of your father and my people, I will be your God. That line about, um, I will put my spirit in you. This is a fascinating, it's a fascinating concept because if you read the, the Old Testament, there are people for times that God will give his spirit to. God's spirit will come to rest on individuals for particular periods of time because they have to do something. It comes to rest on David. It rests on Saul for a while. It rests on prophets so that they can go do stuff that's important. But then presumably God's spirit departs. Never in salvation history, never until Pentecost, does God's spirit actually come and dwell and abide in a human being and stay there. It's Mm. so mind-blowing in the way that salvation history is set up that for Ezekiel to say, actually, you know that thing that happens to kings and prophets and warriors so that God can save nations through them? That's going to happen to every single one of you forever. That's amazing because that's what we believe happens at baptism. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in perpetuity, which is so unprecedented. It, 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 this is, and again, we're talking about the same spirit that in that first reading was literally hovering over the face of all of creation, bringing order out of the conflict. That spirit, that same spirit that, that emanated from Moses as he separated the Red Sea and allowed a whole nation to cross through it, that spirit actually is going to come and dwell within us. That's, that's an incredible thing. That's the goods. Which, now that I'm thinking about it, is a great note to sort of end those readings on as we move forward into the New Testament. Which, which then we say, like a deer that longs for running stream, my soul longs for you, my God. We respond to sing, oh, this, oh, wow, I, I'm longing for that. I mean, like you yeah. just, you even say that and, and it's like yeah. the, the, the satanic temptation is to call you to doubt the gift that's already been given. Adam and yes. Eve yes. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening and and Satan this and Satan tempted them to mm. to to something that they already had. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely right. And so, so when, so when I say that, it's the, like uh, as my, uh, as my, like a deer that longs for running stream, my soul longs for you, my God. We are in contact with God, and yet my yearning is still for God. Yes, because because even even in the experience of His glory, I'm not ultimately satisfied except for with God Himself entirely. Yes, that's I mean that that's the holiest desires that I have is I have yeah. a full desire for full communion. Yeah, that's it, absolutely. Which is exactly what happens according to the epistle. Now that we're in the New Testament, now that the lights have come on, now that. Everything has changed in the church itself. Everything will have changed. Right. And we're in the the Romans now. And what does Romans say? Well, it's Paul reflecting back all of this. And I love how he begins, brothers and sisters, are you unaware? And he's saying this in a certain sense. So we will have, correct me if I'm wrong, baptized a bunch of people by this point. No, you're wrong. Has it not taken place yet? No, we don't do that until after the homily. Until after the homily. Yeah, I knew that. Sorry. Okay. So it's about to be. It's about to happen. A bunch of people are going to be baptized. A bunch of other people have already been baptized, right? All of the rest of us. Um, And what he's saying is, hey, brothers and sisters, hey, everybody who's here, all of you who've listened to all of these readings, who've sat here for a couple hours so far, do you not realize that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You have died to all of that hardship of the Old Testament, all of those things that we just looked back on, Mm. all of those difficulties, all of that punishment. It's dead to you now. You have actually reached the moment that Ezekiel, that Isaiah, that Baruch, that all of these readings were pointing ahead to, this glorious moment that seemed unfathomable. Do you not realize that you've already done that? Hmm. You hit it. You've died to all of that in baptism. You've been drowned and all of your sin along with it. And now you've been risen back up to life in Christ Jesus. And we're reflecting on that appropriately enough as all of these other people are about to undergo the same thing. And what Paul is kind of saying to us is, hey, that thing you're about to witness that all these people are going to do, don't forget that it happened to you. Don't forget the meaning of that. This isn't just a nice ceremony that you put on a tie for and you get to have some Easter eggs afterwards. No, you died. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and, and so, I mean, and, and that's the reminder. You too must think of yourselves as being dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. I mean, that, uh, that's why whenever we're responding to these readings, we sing. I mean, it's because it, 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 singing it actually demands our participation. And really, what, what is even the, just mouthing it demands our participation because we still have to move our lips and pretend to sing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which the, the real response to this, you think of yourselves being dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus is just an hallelujah. There's nothing. There's almost nothing more it's you can just, say. It's just it's it's the it's the guttural longings. It's the deep yes. cry of the heart yeah. to praise God and to say Alleluia in a, lots of Alleluias because we really missed saying it. And there's nothing else to say. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. What else do you say? Right. I don't know. That's and, it. And then we then then we then the capstone is the story of the Jesus. Capstone. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the story of Jesus. Yeah, the end of Mark, which is a shorty this year, when the Sabbath was over. So it's Sunday, in other words. So Sunday morning, there's this whole day. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. Holy Saturday is such a fascinating day for me, isn't it? I remember in college when I read the first serious theological book that I'd ever read. 
mm-hmm. which was Introduction to Christianity by Josef Cardinal Ratzinger, so which is good. one of the most misleading titles of a book <laughs> that, that there's ever been. Yeah. Introduction to, yeah. Dude, it's, it's, it's pretty deep. There's another book, uh, The Way to Christ by J- John Paul II, and it's like, Whoever can find that way through the forest, man, is like this is the way is wide that leads to perdition, and the way is narrow that for the person who can read that book. <laughs> nice, um, but I remember him saying because I, you know, I'd been Catholic all my life, more or less. You know, I'd gone straight back and forth, but he had this chapter. He's going through the creed, but he had this section where he talked about um, what's happening on Holy Saturday and the weirdness of it. And I remember there being something in the book about this challenge to go and sit in a church on Holy Saturday and just feel how strange it is because the Eucharist isn't there. Right. The the Even today, I had to go over to the church. It's Good Friday. Um, and I had to run over to their church to get a microphone stand. And I, I kind of, I mean, it was just, there was a busy morning and I kind of forgot what was going on. I walked into the church and I went to go genuflect and I was like, oh, the door is flung open of the tabernacle. The candle's off. The lights are off. There's no flowers. The images are all covered in black shrouds. And you're just like, oh, the church is creepy today. Yeah. Something's gone. And and Ratzinger really encouraged the reader to like sit there for a while and feel the emptiness. Yeah. Because something that was once there is not there any longer. And even if you've never believed or known or realized that Jesus is in the Eucharist, somehow his absence in the church Somehow that almost speaks more strongly than any apologetic for the Eucharist. You know it's, what I mean? Well, yeah, it's 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 like uh, as a people, we are you, we believe that in mortal sin, we kick out the spirit from yeah. our bodies, yeah. uh, from our very lives. And that because we choose an action that's so in contrary to the life of God. Yes. And in a certain sense, you almost kind of don't know what grace is until you're then you in, until you lose it a lot that's of times. Right. Absolutely. And and it's so it's like that's it's, the story of Baruch. That's the story of the Old Testament. You don't realize what you had as the kingdom of God until you lose it. Don't and you know what you got <laughs> till it's gone. And but but then it's gone. But then this is the be- this is the beautiful part is that um, we were just talking about this the the feast of the sheave the first sheaves feast of first yes the feast of sheaves sheaves <laughs> sheaves the sheaf of first fruits sheave of first fruits tell us about that that feast dude okay so this is one of the the least known of all of the Jewish feast days. Um, and it was, it, yeah, it, it's discussed all of the Jewish, there's seven Jewish feast days that are all laid out in Leviticus 23, I think. Um, but this one nobody knows about. And I, I remember I did a class on this a few months ago. And it was Brant Petrie, who's a great biblical scholar, who I was reading some of his stuff or listening to something. And he kind of led me on this road. And then I, I started searching some of the Jewish documents, the Mishnah you mentioned earlier. Anyway, this feast, the feast. So in the springtime, there's these three Jewish feasts that all kind of get blurred together. There's um, Passover, of course. And then right after Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We have to clean all the leaven out of the house and, you know, remembrance of the Exodus event. And then right after that, there's this feast called the Feast of the Fe- of the Sheep of first fruits which again is this really it's not an obscure feast but nobody knows about it and i was reading about what they did in the first century and the way it worked was this um and all leviticus says as far as when this feast was to be celebrated is essentially the day after the sabbath after the passover 
right? So the first day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, which would be Sunday, because the Sabbath is on a Saturday. So on the Sunday after the Passover, which would have been on this particular year, Easter Sunday, what you would do on this feast day, so it's 50 days before Pentecost. Pentecost is the big harvest celebration where you get all of the all of the harvest from the, the fields and the crops. But the feast of the sheaf of first fruits is the very, 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 very beginning of that whole harvest. And so what you would do on that first Sabbath after the Passover there was these men from a group called the Ma'amad, who were, I think, the children of the Levitical priests or something like that. And they would go and they would sit at the field. And at daybreak on that Sunday after the Passover, they would go into the field and they would find literally the first gleaning of a, uh, a shoot of a sheaf of wheat coming out of the ground. And they would find the first one that they could find and they would dig it up and they would process that first little tiny sheaf that's just coming out of the ground. They would take it and they would process up to Jerusalem and there would be animals dressed up in gold and silver and there would be singing and people would dance along the road and they would go and meet the priests in the temple and there would be music and celebrating and yelling because God had provided, he had moved basically from death to life. Because our fields were dead and now they're coming back to life and something has risen out of the ground and God is going to provide sustenance to us through that. And as that feast is taking place on the Sunday after the Passover, Jesus is literally rising from the dead in a garden from the ground as he's probably overhearing all the people shouting in thanksgiving for the fruit that has come up out of the ground that is going to save them, which will be ultimately fulfilled at Pentecost when the harvest reaches its fullness and it's poured out on all of us and we can finally eat the fruits of all these things. And of course, what do we see on Easter Sunday? It's the first fruits of the church. Jesus rises from the ground, which will be fulfilled at Pentecost when the whole church is now brought into it. And the apostles will finally be filled with the Holy Spirit, as Ezekiel talked about, and they will baptize 3,000 that day. And all of these readings that we've been marching through will kind of see this profound moment of fulfillment. But to be there that day, to be Jesus sitting on the tomb being like, huh, I hear that. I've heard them sing this song every, every year for my entire life. And I wonder if as Jesus had been in Jerusalem every year for these feasts and listening to the psalms that they're singing about God's salvation and how he's brought us from death to life and all of these things that are taking place, if he was reflect, what what would that be like for Jesus Uh, to be thinking about that every single year? Well, to know that those songs and psalms and dressing up is to actually be, it is for him. Yes. See, this is the thing yeah, is that it. they inadvertently are welcoming him and the absolutely familiar, the familiarity and the love that was being poured out. But then mm. but then we also see these women in a, in a certain sense, they're metaphorical. And St. Peter, when he runs back, they're metaphorically these first now they're they're actually they're in reality. The metaphor is no longer yeah. um, is no longer needed because the first fruits of belief is and resurrection has been shown. And so absolutely. now everything that has been prefigured in a certain sense is like flipped on its head. Absolutely. And now, now we are, we become personalized. It's, it's a personalism. It's like no longer do we have to worry about the blood of bulls and goats as if, as if ash is going to give us some sort of sanctification, but that in fact, it's actually life and the spirit that's going to hover the Ruah, Ruah, how do we say it? Rahab. Ruah, Rahab is now hovering over. And I love the one angel, by the way. (laughs) 
is clothed in a white robe and he says, Ah oh, man, don't be amazed, it's all good. He's like <laughs> you, he's like he's like, You seek Jesus, the crucified, he's been raised, he's not here. Um but you can look at this place. Go and talk to Peter, it's cool. He's like he's like, Go back, tell Peter. And this is the thing is that dude, I really I always in my heart, I just believe that this is the uh angel that was placed outside of Eden with the flaming sword. I wonder. And that he he's been this whole time like just guarding like guarding in this special way in this particular way in a mystical way and like now he gets to manifest and he just gets to be real and be like hey what's up y'all he's like <laughs> you're seeking that and he's just like drinking a cup of coffee because like early. Dude, it's early in the morning he's dude everybody's a little tired and mm-hmm. like he's like man i've been doing this for a long time i've been waiting for eden to be back open i wanted to drop that sword it's hot i wanted to drop that sword it was flaming this whole time well, on that happy flaming note, <laughs> just the, it's dro- drop, dropping the sword. Drop your sword, baby. <laughs> well, we hope you all have oh. a blessed Easter. Thank you for uh, bearing with us this whole time, dude. That I, I have to say, I really enjoyed going through those readings with you today. It's I just, fun. I'm really inspired in faith, and I just, I um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so, so it's like the church knows what it's doing. You all these readings slapped together. It's like there's a scheme to. There's a schema. So much love. We'll see you soon. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.